Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, and I believe that the music this morning has prepared us to, to kind of focus and turn our attention to this passage of Scripture. And if we are consciously aware of what we sang this morning, this passage will make so much better sense to you in the context of being clothed with humility. Humility is a greatly misunderstood virtue today, particularly in a virtue-signaling kind of world. As we tackle this from a biblical perspective, there are things that that we must grasp, and there's a balance that that must be found. There's a, a, a tension that must be resolved, and there's only one way to do that. And in the end, that's what we'll focus on as we reflect on just a couple of verses this morning out of First Peter. Before we begin, I want to thank everyone who came out to the family fun day yesterday at Chuckster's, family ministry day. A special thanks to Mr. Matt and all the hard work that he put into doing that. And although it was a, a fairly warm day, it was a beautiful day. And it was great to see multiple generations uh, gather together and just have some fun. You know, this wasn't a Baptist event. We didn't open in prayer. We didn't bless the fellowship. We didn't have a Bible study when all was done. We are bound in Christ, and we were able to celebrate together. It was a good day. Special thanks to Mr. Matt for all of his hard work, and I, and I hope that you had a good time. If you're wondering who came, those who have sunburn on their foreheads are probably the ones who were here yesterday as a family fun day. In First Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Peter writes, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker and the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversights, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. In this text, we are introduced to a theology of suffering. Reminder that as Peter writes this letter in whatever capacity that he is writing and addressing particular people groups, he's speaking to them in a time of grave need. They are being persecuted. The persecution is increasing. They are beginning to feel the pain of standing up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, standing separate and apart from the rest of the world, being sanctified by grace in Jesus Christ, and, and quite frankly, sticking out like a sore thumb in a very pagan culture. And the more they expose themselves through their faithfulness to the gospel, the more they experience suffering that is a direct result of their faith, both their faith and, and behind closed doors but our faith has to be exercised outside of those doors as well. 
Sometimes we have to open up those doors and let the world know what truth really is, to stand in opposition to the direction that the world is drifting. And when we make our positions known, and by the way, they're not our positions, that the positions that come directly out of Scripture, there is indeed suffering that is coming. Peter is teaching us about that suffering. He is teaching those who are going through it at his particular time about what it means to suffer for godliness. And in this theology of suffering that he builds within the context, he, in chapter 5, deals with the reality that if you are going to be a believer and live your faith in this world, you will suffer persecution. Why are you surprised? Why does it shock you? Why do you stand out? If you understand biblical Christianity, all of those questions have been answered. At the same time, in the midst of their suffering, he wanted them to embrace it Yet understand that it was only for a season, he says in chapter 4, verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In the midst of your suffering, God is still on the throne. He is still in charge. And if he takes care of the birds of the air, the fowls of the air, the lilies of the valley, do you think he has forgotten you? In the midst of your suffering, you think he's forgotten your name? Do you not understand? He knows everything that you're experiencing. He knows all of your heartaches and heartbreaks. He knows what is taking place in your life. And we turn our souls to that faithful creator while doing the best we can in this world. And he always performs his will, even if that will involves suffering. That's the theology of suffering that Peter addresses in the text. Chapter 5, he addresses it particularly in the midst of the glorious calling of those men to gospel ministry. Again, we looked at this. We won't uh, spend a lot of time, but he says in verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you, those who have been called of God and equipped by God to lead the flock of God and in particular units within the context of the local church. He calls himself a fellow elder, not an apostle, but a fellow elder a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker and the glory that is going to be revealed. There's a glory coming in spite of the suffering that is real today. And he calls pastors to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, to oversee them, to lead them, to teach them, to guide them, to show them the way, exercising oversight not under compulsion. The ministry is not for the faint of heart. The gospel ministry is not for those who fear suffering. The gospel ministry is for those who are called and are willing to immerse their lives for the sake of the gospel and to shepherding small bands of the sheep of God, the the sheep of Christ, the church, if you would, and endure hardship during all of that. The pastor who has to be pressed and pushed to, to do gospel ministry, the pastor who always has to be prodded to put a little bit more effort in as a man who has failed in his calling. Nobody, nobody should be in, in a place of having to tell us, you, you have to handle this, you have to do this, you've got to speak to it's not worthy of your calling. 
to do those things that you're called to do will bring suffering, but you need to, to do the work of the ministry and face the suffering willingly as God would have you. In other words, let me paraphrase it for you. Do you think that I would have called you to this gospel ministry if I could not sustain you in that ministry? Do you think that I would have asked you to do this if, if I was unwilling to gift you and prepare you to do this? Do you think somehow that I am surprised by what you're going through? And the King of kings and Lord of lords, and I am the chief shepherd, and you are serving me, so serve willingly and and do it with all of your effort, not punching in and punching out. It is a lifestyle, and not for shameful gain, but eagerly, because of what you get out of it, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples in the flock. We talked about that divine tension that comes with that. You see, in the pastoral ministry, they're not my sheep. They're His. I'm not the final arbiter or say only Christ is. I am simply doing His bidding and following the lead of the Holy Spirit and remaining faithful and preaching the Word in season and out of season. And it's a glorious calling, but it is a calling plagued with suffering. And I told you, in the last 10 years, it has gotten exponentially more and more difficult. Part of the reason for that is the very issue we will address this morning from the text. And the issue addressed is not just to the flock, but to everyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ. It's funny in pastoral leadership, you have this weighty responsibility of having to make decisions without ever knowing the outcome of the decisions that you're going to be making. You have to do the best you can with the information that you're given in very critical times without knowing the hindsight of six months from now and the best way to tackle it. At the same time, you're never given the luxury of waiting and pushing it off and pretending that it's not an urgent issue. Churches fail and close because pastors don't step into the gap and deal with shepherding the flock of God in times of crisis. We don't always have all of the information, and we don't have the luxury of waiting for that information, but thank God we have this awareness that Christ is ultimately responsible for His sheep, and you're ultimately and solely responsible for simply being obedient. So take your Bibles and turn, please. You see how that all fleshes out in the context of local church ministry. But organizations cannot survive when there's no one in charge. There's the tension of ministry. Do you ever get it right? Probably not. Do you second-get yourself all of the time? Do you think you're worthy of the task? Never. But you're comforted. This is God's will. Do what He told you to do. Don't complicate this, and He'll handle everything else. What attention that is. You're responsible. You're accountable. You have to do this, but the ultimate decision and weight doesn't lie with you. You feel it. You, you experience it. But this is the flock of God. These are the sheep of Christ's pasture, and 
this glorious calling is to be a small bit player on a big stage knowing that God is at work moving all of the pieces for His glory. And someday it makes perfect sense when we see Him and we become like Him. He says in verse 4, when we see Him likewise, or excuse me, and when the chief shepherd appears, that being Christ, to these elders and shepherds, depending on your polity, when the chief shepherd appears, and He will appear, I am waiting for the sound of a trumpet. What a crazy world, but a better day is coming. When the chief shepherd shall appear, you, you who are elders, you who are entrusted with leadership, those who primarily handle the teaching of the Word, the the teaching and feeding of, of the flock, the members of these small bands of sheep who have been purchased by Christ Himself, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It seems to be this crown that never fades away when the polish of ministry fades away quickly. It's funny how people love you one week and can't stand you the next. That's the beauty of the Word of God. Sometimes it builds us up and sometimes it tears us down, but it's always the book and it's for our good and His glory. You can't be looking around with your head on a swivel when you're called the shepherd, the flock of God. You don't have the luxury of, of foresight, and you, you don't always have the, the reality of hindsight. We've been here before. I know how to handle this, but the buck still stops there. If you're faithful, when this chief shepherd appears, there is a crown, there is a reward for it. We call this the Bema Seat of Christ. The Scriptures speak of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So whether we are at home or away, in heaven or, or here on earth, we make it our aim to please Him, meaning Christ, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ, listen to this, so that each one of us may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. The pastor is not exempt from that. This higher glorious calling creates a greater accountability for me, and I will stand before the throne of my Savior someday and give an account of the things that I did, whether good or bad, as I was entrusted to shepherd the flock of God that is among me. It keeps me up sometimes at night. It weighs on you in the difficult times of decision-making. And then you remember that it's God who does it, I have to be faithful, and someday it will be worth it all. A crown of glory awaits those who are faithful in this task. But I want you to know on this raised platform in the future where Jesus Christ grants these these crowns or awards to His people and makes manifest what kind of job we did with our faith here on earth, all of us, all of us have the ability to achieve this eternal recognition by our Savior. There is an incorruptible crown that the Scriptures speak of. Those are for, for faithful believers who endure and diligently maintain their discipleship. But Paul says, beating our bodies daily if necessary to stay faithful to the task. And, and how that must have spoken into the lives of these that Peter was writing to hang in there. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't give over to, to your former way of life. He says it within First Peter. And, and if you stay faithful, there's an incorruptible crown that you will receive at the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. There's a crown of rejoicing. 
It's a special crown that the Scriptures speak to for those who, who are soul winners by nature. Now, listen carefully. It's not a crown for those who notch their belts and say, I led 18 people to the Lord. This crown is given to those who are faithful and proclaiming the gospel to every creature. Jeremiah didn't have a convert, but he was faithful. Sometimes faithfulness is seen when there's little to reap. And the crown of rejoicing are those who stay faithful in gospel ministry and in soul winning. There's the crown of life, particular crown. And I want to encourage some of you this morning, this is for those who endure trials. And some of you know the valley of the shadow of death. Stay strong. Keep the faith. Don't quit. Don't give up. There's a crown of life for that. There's a crown of righteousness, according to Paul in 2 Timothy, for those who love His appearing, those who live with great anticipation that changes how they live every single day. We're doing this because we know that a better day is coming and and, and Jesus is coming again. There's a special crown for that. And then, of course, at this Bema seat, there is a crown of glory. There may be more than that. There's not less because the Scriptures speak to those things. And if we are faithful… He is faithful, and there are rewards in heaven for the faithfulness of His people. You say, well, what does that have to do with humility? Well, hang on. Look at verse 5, likewise. In the same manner. Now, He's shifting away a little bit from the things that He's spoken prior to. He's shifting away from His emphasis and teaching, the imperatives laid upon those, those elders and pastors And he's shifting his attention to another group of people within the church under those shepherds. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. There's a number of different interpretations for this particular passage of Scripture, but within its context, he is talking about those who are young, perhaps spiritually immature. He's speaking to those who who perhaps have no life experience to speak of. And I believe that probably he is speaking to those people because it is those people who never had to endure hardship. It's those people who've never been through difficult life experiences who have everything figured out. You've ever met these young people? They've got all of the answers, but they face none of the dilemmas of life. He's speaking particularly to those people. And he's speaking to them in their youth. And don't think for a second that God doesn't honor youth. He tells uh, Timothy in in another letter, don't let anyone despise your youth. It is a precious thing. There's value to that. But at the same time, there must be a healthy dose of humility because you haven't been there and done that. And you're not necessarily mature spiritually. And and you don't have a wealth of experience to base your life and, and, and behavior upon Sometimes those who are younger, aggressive and headstrong, and in their spiritual immaturity, they have all of the answers, but they're simple answers to complex problems, and that never works. The kind of people, instead of tackling a problem that a shepherd wrestles with through the Scripture, would rather just throw out a pithy statement or verse, all things work together for good just to get over, just, just, just get over it. He says to those people in particular, Pipe down. What does he mean? Submit to the elders. Place yourself under them. They know a few things because they've seen a few things. Sounds like a commercial, doesn't it? (laughs) 
the gray hair, it's a crown. Been there and done that. So they face things you've never faced before. Listen to them. They've gleaned wisdom and probably the hard way because they were young once and had it all figured out. Seems to me I have less answers and more questions than I first started this gig called shepherding. <laughs> That's exactly what he's saying here. Life's hard. Life's hard sometimes. He says in the text, likewise, you who are younger, be subject. Willingly place yourselves under them with humility. Understand that there's a structure and order to society and even to the church. Whether you like it or not, God places people as He chooses, not as you choose. You've heard me say this before, it's not a poke in the eye to anybody. My shepherding role at First Baptist Church in Johnson City isn't because I stood above everybody else in a crowd. It is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning me. I serve the chief shepherd. I'm at your disposal, but I'm in service of the king. Thank you very much. Who does what he chooses to do, which is an overwhelming notion. So when you were at that place where you've got it all figured out, when in your youth you've got all of the answers, willingly be subject to the elders. Uh, Pastor Russ and I have lamented a couple of times over this. One of the marked differences that we see in the world today with, with young men, even in ministry, compared to when we were young in ministry, and granted, sorry, Pastor Russ, for us that's a long time ago when we were young in ministry is we thought we had it all figured out, but we lived in a culture where you still respected your elders. You didn't challenge them. You, didn't, you still respected that. We, that's gone. That's gone. You're a buffoon today. No, nobody respects any of that faith. It's just a different world. That's why this passage is so critically important for the church today. Be subject. Place yourself under. It doesn't mean that you don't think you have all of the right answers, and it doesn't think that you know what's best. It's that place where you understand God has put a structure in place, and you're to be submissive to the structure in place. There's some wisdom to be gained and gleaned by all of that. So he calls them, these young men in particular, clothe yourselves with humility. Now, of course, this is an instruction for everyone. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. What does it mean to clothe yourself? This is a really important word. This word goes back to the time of a slave, not, not a real popular topic in our, in our woke culture today. Listen carefully. You are a slave of Christ. You better sort this out. You are a slave of Christ. So the picture is of a slave who would put on an apron or wrap themselves in a towel to do some of the, the menial tasks of of servanthood. Clothe yourself, put on a towel, put the apron on. You're going to do a, a, a job that isn't for the best and the brightest. Clothe yourself with humility, a lowliness of mind. Some have interpreted it as a self-abasement. And when you are assigned the lowliest of tasks, tie on to yourself this cloak of humility. This did not go well 
and the age in which Peter wrote in that Roman Empire, for the Romans felt that humility was shameful. It was an act of cowardice. It was somehow a sense of weakness to to have humility in that culture, kind of like our world today. So as Peter is speaking counterculturally, he says, no matter what the world thinks about it, I want you to clothe yourselves with this kind of humility. There's a word picture in Scripture that paints this perfectly. And I don't think a lot of Christians, not even mature Christians, understand this humility as well as we ought to understand it. The picture takes us back to a passage of Scripture in John chapter 15, or 13, excuse me. It's the final days that Jesus is spending with His disciples. They are apart in, in an upper room, sit on a table for a meal, and Jesus gets up silently and quietly and walks over to the corner and takes a towel, and He girds it around His waist. He, he covers Himself with a towel, and He picks up a basin of water. The picture is pretty simple. It was the lowest slave or servant in the household that had the responsibility to wash the feet of the guests who arrived for dinner. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords who gets up in the middle of all the conversation and clothes himself with humility and puts on a towel around his waist and takes a basin of water. And one by one, he kneels at the feet of the disciples and he washes their feet. Gets to Peter, and he says, not my feet. He said, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus says at the end of washing the feet of the disciples, when he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am so. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Don't you suppose Peter has that in mind when he says, clothe yourself in humility? There was no humility with Peter when Jesus came to wash his feet. It was a false humility. And boy, did he learn a lesson. So he said, hey, you want to be the first? You want to be the shepherd? Clothe yourself. Put the towel around your waist and get on your knees. Basin of water and start to wash somebody else's feet. Peter is speaking out of experience as he writes in this text, clothe yourself with humility towards one and other. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example for you to do just what I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Hey, listen, everyone in the local church, God has given you leaders ordained by God. Clothe yourself in humility and willingly place yourself under that leadership. And it ties us back to John chapter 13 in that critical time in history. Don't fight against God's will. Don't fight against His purpose. Don't fight against God's plan. If He wanted you to be shepherd, He would have made you shepherd, but you're not. You're a young man or you're a part of this local church and You need to willingly place yourself under God's plan. 
And practice this humility towards all people in every level of every personal relationship. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He quotes Proverbs 3, verses 34, and even verse 35 that read, Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives his favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. It's so paradoxical and counterintuitive, isn't it? You want grace? Put on a towel and get on your knees and wash somebody else's feet. We have reversed that in our culture today, and even for elders and pastors, we have traded the basin and towel for titles and head tables. And that's not the way God designed the church. It's not the way this was supposed to be. It is simply everyone playing their role and part. Boy, there's a divine tension that comes with this clothing oneself in humility. I want to try and clear up that tension, and I'll give you a number of quotes of men who have wrestled through this passage of Scripture, because some of us think that, that humility is thinking down on or less than ourselves. That's not true. God is not asking you to step out of yourself and just ignore the fact that you were bought with a price, that you're clothed in the righteousness of God, that you've been gifted for service to the King, that you've been called to the gospel ministry. God is not asking you to ignore that. He's asking you to celebrate that. That's that's not humility to say, oh, woe is me. I'm such a terrible person. It's such a worm as I. You are a glorious being created in the image of God, rescued through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no greater being than that. But you're still supposed to clothe yourself in humility. How do we navigate this divine tension to say and declare we matter? God has made us this way for His glory. How do you do that and have a sense of humility as well? Well, that's what, what men and women have wrestled with since the beginning of time. In fact, these same disciples probably recognized or wrestled with that in their own particular lives. C.S. Spurgeon perhaps says it best, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself, to see yourself as you really are. Some of us have a tendency to see only the good things about us. We can never see any weakness. Some of you spend all your time looking at your weaknesses and never see the glory of God and salvation and giftedness. Somehow in that tension, we have to navigate this and have a right and appropriate sense of who we are. That's what biblical humility is. It's not self-induced groveling. It's to see ourselves as we really are, clothed in the righteousness of Christ and perhaps simply bit players on a big stage. So how do we navigate this divine tension? Again, Spurgeon says, you're not mature. If you have a high esteem of yourself, he who boasts in himself is but a babe in Christ, if indeed he be in Christ at all. Uh, Spurgeon was not one of these popular preachers today. <laughs> you got a high esteem of yourself. Well, first of all, you're immature if you're a Christian at all. How do you suppose that would go in today's churches? Let me tell you, not real. Well, Christians may think much of themselves, and growing Christians think themselves nothing. But mature Christians know that they, they aren't nothing. The more holy we are, the more we mourn over our infirmities, the more humble we are as we estimate ourselves, the more we lift our eyes to our author 
and king. And that's where ultimate submission comes from. J.I. Packer says, uh, until we have become humble and teachable, until we become humble and teachable, can I ask you a question? Does that describe you this morning? Are you humble, teachable? Are you willing to wrap yourself in that towel, kneel at the feet of perhaps someone that you perceive even less than yourself until we become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness and distrusting our own thoughts and willing to have our minds turned upside down unless we get there, you'll never achieve divine wisdom. It'll never become yours. I don't think there's a greater text for this, in my opinion, than Isaiah chapter 6. Remember our study in holiness? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And in my opinion, that is the key to humility. To rightly understand your gifts and your abilities and your callings, but to recognize in the greater scope of things they pale in comparison to the glory of your King. Woe is me, is the beginning of wisdom founded upon humility. And just when you think you've achieved it, William Law reminds us, you can have no greater sign of confirmed pride than when you think you are humble enough. <laughs> Got this. No, no, you don't, even, you don't even know what humility means. In other words, Facebook. <laughs> Facebook is a place where we play this role that we are something that we're not, and, and we're such a godly this and such a godly this, and I did this, and I served this, and there's no humility in proclaiming your humility. In fact, as soon as you proclaim it, you prove yourself to be proud and boastful. Humility is not an estimate that I must make of myself. Humility is estimated by the people around me who watch how I live. You see how that works? It's not a self-assessment. Never has been a self-assessment. And when you think you've arrived, you have deceived yourself. Spurgeon again says, if a man tells me that he's humble, I know him to be profoundly proud. <laughs> humility indeed is a strange thing. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I love that definition. I love that definition. So it's not, oh, I'm a worm, I'm going to beat myself up, I'm a terrible, I'm a child of the King, thank you. 
I've been gifted by the creator of the universe. I've been put on this earth for a purpose, and the purpose is to glorify my God. There is no higher calling than that. It's not thinking negative about my state and stature. It is just thinking less and less about me and starting to think more and more about everyone else. Isn't that what Peter says in the text? Clothe yourself with humility, what? Toward one another. Toward toward one another. That deference, that focus, not on yourself, but what God has done and what, what God is doing and always blessed us. John Calvin and his Institutes of Christian Religion says, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with the glory of God's majesty. It's not that we don't matter and that we don't count. That's not humility. We do matter and we do count and we, we navigate this divine tension But true humility is seen in comparison to the glory of our God, and then we finally understand. Then we finally get this this humility. We finally understand that even in our submission, we are not submitting to the pastor. We are not submitting to our spouse. We're not submitting to the government. We're not submitting to… We are submitting to the Lord Christ Himself. We are saying, you have made me. You have created me. The situation I find myself in, you know from the end to the beginning what a wretched man that I am, I trust you. That's true humility. As Peter speaks of that, he's calling attention to all of us to clothe ourselves in humility, not as a strange thing, but a normal outcome of what it means to live for the glory of God. Again, not less thinking less of myself, just thinking of myself less. Well, it's hard to do. It's really, really hard to do. I can give you examples in my life of where I, I just had this epiphany by the grace of God in the ministry of His Spirit. I'm, this, I'm not this bright and shining star. I'm this bit player on a big stage, and God is doing something miraculous. He's letting me be a part of it. What a glory that is. Remember the, the building plan? And this fall, coming fall, we'll be here 12 years. How did that happen? You know how it happened? The same way it happened every step of the process, the hand of our God was upon us. God gifted us with the right men to make it happen, and we are grateful for those men, but the hand of our God was upon us. God give us, gifted us with the money to build this building, and we can't sit back and say, look what we did. No, the hand of our God was upon us. That's how the divine tension of humility is resolved. The hand of God is upon us, and I matter, but He must increase, <laughs> and I must decrease, and I must clothe myself with humility. Coram Deo, before the face of God. I've shared this with you before. Casting crowns has a song called, Who Am I? That the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name and would care to know my heart. That's where humility comes from. That's where it comes from. I am yours. I am yours. I am yours. 
And as He increases, we decrease and we understand that although a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow, I am His. The secret of resolving the divine tension. Do I matter? Yes. Only within the context of the glory of God. Coram Deo before the face of God. How are you doing with this humility thing? I suspect it's still ways to go, just like me. Let us be like Isaiah as we behold our God and become smaller and smaller and smaller, enveloped with his glory finally understanding humility. Father, thank You for glorious yet difficult and painful truth. Clothe us in humility, not wimpiness, not cowardice, not a lack of confidence, but a growing confidence in our Lord and King, our state and our calling as submissive beings to the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we behold our God, remind us that ours is a glorious story only because of You. Clothe us in humility for Your glory, I pray in Jesus' name.